Welcome to the Success Road Podcast. This is the podcast where we meet at the intersection of your life, and then we take decisive action to move onward toward higher levels of success, whatever that means for you. My name is Joshua Rivers from PodcastGuyMedia.com, and I'm taking you on this journey today. Matt Norman is president and CEO of Norman and Associates, as well as the author of the book, Four Patterns of Healthy People. In addition, Matt's coaching and facilitation has helped Fortune 100 companies, nonprofits, and entrepreneurial firms to transform the way that they engage employees and clients. Today's episode on Success Road focuses on how to be more healthy in your life, and we get to talk to Matt Norman about this. We're going to be able to hear a little bit about Matt's story as he learned that we all need to develop ways of thinking and behaving as an adaption to our environment. He goes through four different patterns that we can be able to look at in our life. And so there's thought patterns, relationship patterns, and then there are ego patterns and operating patterns. And so we're going to go through and touch on some of these, and we're going to specifically look at some things about the importance of sleep and how to be able to have the most energy in your life. So let's go ahead and dive into this conversation that I had with Matt Norman. I realized that once upon a time, we all develop ways of thinking and behaving as an adaption to our environment. And every day we repeat those thoughts and behaviors in order to succeed and maybe even survive in our environment. One day, it's likely that we realize that those ways of thinking and behaving no longer serve us well. We realize we're stuck. And so because of that, we have a decision to make whether we'll remain stuck or self-confront and grow. And because of that, I wrote the book to help people grow into healthier patterns and how they think, relate with others, view themselves, and make choices about how they operate until finally people can live with greater joy and impact. Mm -hmm. So, so what are the four patterns that you mention in the book? How we think our thought patterns, our relationship patterns, how we view ourselves. So the relationship being the second, the third, how we view ourselves. So our ego patterns, and then fourth, our operating patterns, which is really about the choices we make, about how we engage with our environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I really like that. And you, you really build it throughout there. And it, it seems, uh, from what I've gathered, that like the operating patterns is like you take the other three aspects and you, you make them work or whatever. You, you set up the environment and, and things like that so that you can be able to actually implement and be able to start making changes and things like that as well. Yeah, I think that's right. Energy level is a good example of that. You know, so when we're tired, it's hard to have healthy thought patterns. It's harder to relate well with others. We become less patient and it's also become, become more self-protective, more focused on our own needs, which is when the ego comes into play. So simple things like getting enough sleep from an operating pattern standpoint can really fuel the other patterns, like you say. So when it comes to getting more sleep, that's that's something I 
uh, did not get much of for a lot of my adult life. Uh, a lot of my adult life was coupled with working lots of overtime, plus doing something secondary or third third dairy. I don't know what that is. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so, and so, so doing a whole bunch of things and then that left like no room for sleep. Um, and there was always this thought that I heard people say, and I always got them in the back of my head. Well, I'm young. I can sleep later. I can handle it. And, and looking back, no. Yeah. I, I technically I'm still alive. So I survived, but it was not a great environment when I'm only getting two, three, four hours of sleep. And I'm definitely not operating optimally. And so, um, so that, that's really hard. So outside of having like so many commitments that maybe we need to work on, let's, okay, let's pare down what we actually need to do. Aside from that, how can we be able to work on trying to get more sleep or better sleep? Sometimes we just can't control it. Like you're saying, maybe our job requires it, or perhaps we have a newborn in the house. And so we, there's, we have no choice but to wake up. But Stanford University Sleep Center has produced really interesting research showing that for about 99.5% of the population, we need to have at least seven hours of sleep on an ongoing basis in order to function properly. In fact, they you know, recommend between seven and nine hours of quality sleep. So part of it is just making a commitment to get that amount of sleep. If we back off from when we need to wake up in the morning to when we go to bed, just making sure that we go to bed at that time. From there, you have to start, we have to start asking ourselves how we can optimize the quality of our sleep or our ability to go to sleep. And so having screen moratoriums, for example, for 30 minutes prior to us going to bed is a critical factor because studies show that screens activate parts of our brains and make it harder to enter into REM sleep or just shut down our thoughts. Number one, two, food and alcohol consumption. So not eating or drinking anything as much as possible aside from water at, for about an hour before we go to bed is key. If you, know, if you go to bed and you've just had a big meal or you've had a couple glasses of wine, the studies show, and often we realize this from personal experience, that the quality of our sleep just deteriorates. So that's another factor. And then doing things on the positive side to get ourselves in a mental and physical state where we are ready to go to sleep. Stretching, for example, or having a nightly routine is really important. So every, more, every night, I lay on the ground next to my bed and I stretch for 15 minutes and I have a roller and I just roll out. And part of it is telling my body that it's time to go to bed and also stretching is found to really relax our body, stretching and breathing. And then I would also add consistency. You know, we build circadian rhythms and if one day we're waking up at 7 a.m., another day we're waking up at 5 a.m. and then 10 a.m., and we're trying to back off seven to nine hours of sleep from that point, we're going to bed at different times and our body just doesn't know quite what to do with it. I mean, we've all had the experience of going to another time zone where it's hard to fall asleep or wake up at certain times. And you just, there, it's obvious that our circadian rhythms are really a thing. So for all those mm-hmm. factors, I think we really have to manage our energy well and it starts with sleep. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of my problems. Uh, I mean, aside from not enough hours, my, the times that I was sleeping was like way off. I was working third shift. Plus then I had all these different daytime 
activities, some in the morning, some in the afternoon, some in the evening. And so my sleep was all over the place and I had no rhythm. (laughs) (laughs) So not musically speaking, although some might question that as well, but (laughs) that's a totally different subject. But anyway, (laughs) but anyway, another thing that, that came to my mind though, is you were saying that as we prepared to go to bed you're making you're, you're talking about like the screen stimulate us and things like that and um another thing that i know that sometimes not always but sometimes keeps me awake is like just all the different thoughts of like all the everything that's happened or maybe everything that's coming up the next day and and so my brain is just racing trying to think of all those different things is there anything that you found is helpful to be able to maybe shut that part down so that you can actually rest yeah. Well, uh, in, so partially not having as many stimulations close to bed can help reduce the thoughts, right? I mean, if we're not doing work up, you know, until 15 minutes before we go to bed, it's going to make it easier if we aren't watching television, you know, within a 30 to 60 minute window before we fall asleep, it will probably reduce the amount of thoughts. So part of it is like what goes, what we consume or what we expose ourselves to may trigger certain thoughts. So that would be the first question I think we want to ask ourselves is what am I exposing myself to that may be triggering these thoughts? The second thing is we talk about in the first section of the book around healthy thought patterns, this metaphor of thinking of your thought streams like a a river or an actual stream and imagining that leaves are falling into the stream. Some are green and some are red. Green leaves representing energizing or restful thoughts red leaves representing more anxious thoughts or thoughts that are draining us of energy. And sports psychologists will often coach high-level athletes to not try to prevent the red leaves from falling into the stream, rather to accept the fact that those thoughts, those draining or anxious thoughts are falling into the stream, but then just to let them keep going, not to ruminate on them, not to fixate on them, and instead to choose to focus on the green thoughts. So you know, we have this choice of what we spotlight with our attention. So again, it's not, oh no, I'm thinking about work. You know, I've had that where I've had uh, insomnia at points in my life. And if I wake up in the middle of the night, I get real, I'll get really anxious like, oh no, I don't wanna start thinking about work right now because it'll get me awake and have a hard time falling asleep. But rather, now I've learned to accept those thoughts coming and then just let them go, let them pass, and instead focus my attention elsewhere. And uh, so I think those are the key things. I think the third key thing from a technique standpoint is, you know, we talk about what we expose ourselves to. We can also think about how we release those thoughts constructively, like writing them down. You know, so I keep a, a notepad next to my nightstand so that if I have a thought in the middle of the night, I just write it down and then that allows me to release it. That's kind of a classic David Allen technique of getting the art of getting things done. You know, it's mind like water, you know, always keep your mind like water, write things down so that you don't have to pay attention to them. You can think about them in the morning. Yeah. I love that. I love that. That's a great, that's a great idea. And so I, how do we be able to figure out, and so you mentioned there earlier about like our energy. So how can we be able to, maximize our energy and then, and then maybe like work our schedule if possible. I mean, obviously not, we can't work everything necessarily or maybe we can't, but anyway, so how do we match our schedule to match like when our energy is higher naturally? Cause I, everyone has a little bit different 
times when their energy is highest. And so how, how do we be able to manage our energy that way? Yeah, we were talking about how Daniel Pink wrote the book When, revealing research about the different types of uh, clocks that we each manage. You know, there are certainly people that tend to be morning people. There are people that are night, you know, night owls. And then there are people that have the most energy in the middle of the day. And so part of it's self-awareness, knowing what kind of person we are so that we can put our most vigilant activities or our most thought intensive activities into the period where we tend to be optimized based on our personality style. I think in that book, when you can even take a self-assessment to determine, you know, although maybe it's just obvious for each person when their energy level is the highest. So part of it is that. And then also thinking about, um, you know, doing things, certainly some activities lend themselves well to better times of the day, regardless of the type of energy schedule that we have. For example, uh, you know, studies show that the uh, ventral lateral prefrontal cortex, which is the, the part of our brain that says no to things, is strongest when we wake up. It's like the brakes on a car. And imagine that it, the, the metaphor here is if we were driving a car and every time we pumped the brakes, the brakes lost some of their strength. And so by like the 10th time we pumped the brakes, we had no more brakes anymore. Well, that would be, it would be crazy and unsafe to drive a car that with brakes that operated like that. But that's exactly how our brain operates with the ventrolateral prefrontal cortex. It's, it sits right above our temples and literally it's the brakes of our, of our thoughts. It's our ability to, to say no to things or keep distractions at bay. And every time we pump the brakes on that, it loses its energy throughout the day. And so that's why often toward the end of the day, we have the least the lowest ability to say no to cravings or temptations or distractions. And so doing things in the morning that require us to be distraction-free or resist temptations are often the most important factor. Now, there are things that we can do to strengthen our ventrolateral prefrontal cortex throughout the day, like uh, saying no once and not continuing to say, well, maybe I should eat that chocolate. No, ah, no, I Oh, maybe it's okay to have that chocolate. No, I probably shouldn't. Because every time we say no, we literally are weakening that muscle, which is why sometimes by the sixth time we've asked ourselves whether we should eat that chocolate, we're finally like, okay, fine, I'll just eat the chocolate, you know, because we weakened it so much. So we can say no once and then just veto it and move on. And we can also, you know, sleep and eating well and all those other factors that keep our whole body feeling better that also strengthens our ventral prefrontal cortex. Hmm. That's really interesting. And so I've heard that similar type thing, not, not quite so scientifically put, um, but, but, but I've, I've heard that that principle of like our willpower has, there, there's just like a certain number or a certain amount of things that we can be able to do, a certain number of decisions that we can make well in a day. And the more we use up, the less that we have at the end of the day. And, and so, I mean, yeah, I, I find that be very true. And so it's easy for me to first half of the day to be able to say no to the right foods and, or, or say, say no to the wrong foods. Or yes. Anyway. Yeah, and, right, right. Yeah. And, and, but then as the day goes on, it's like, okay, that, yeah, that chocolate cake is starting to look a little bit more delicious. Looking a little bit so. better. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And you know, I think uh, kids tend to know this intuitively. They know that if they 
ask their parent or their teacher the request enough times or enough different ways, they start to learn that eventually they'll break down and give in. And uh, so I think intuitively we understand that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And so kids are very, very, very good at that. And so, (laughs) well, another thing that you talk about um, in the book is about transparency. And that's not something I don't think is talked about enough. Um, and so, so I'm curious if you can expound on, on that and the patterns around transparency. Yeah. So when we talk about energy levels, we've mainly been focused on our physical energy levels and maybe our mental cognitive energy levels, like our ability to say no, but there's also emotional energy and I believe spiritual energy, like energy in our, in our spirit and our soul that we have to maximize as well to be our best selves. And a lot of that comes from the relationships that we have. Specifically, there's been a lot of evidence, you know, Brene Brown is a great thought leader in this area that indicates that we tend to be more successful, more effective when we allow others in, when we show up as we really are. You know, there's a lot of longevity research, for example, that shows that people live the longest who have the deepest and healthiest relationships. And a big part of relationships is letting others in and letting ourselves out, right, as far as who we really are. And so that's why in the book, in the section around choices, we talk about the choices we make to be transparent. Part of that's being accessible. Right now, it's particularly hard to be accessible for a lot of people because of isolation and quarantines. And so it's an intentional choice and effort that we have to make to do things like we're doing right now, to make connections with each other. And even if we can't be in person, and then in addition to being accessible is letting our emotions, our experiences, our thoughts be accessible as well by letting our guard down and, and being honest, honestly sharing with others about our life experience. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. So yeah, you mentioned Brene Brown in, um, last year, I think it was last year, um, one of, one of my clients, I, I work as a, a content manager for him. And so I'm a big part of the team and a lot of the things that we do. And as a team, we went through um, uh, yeah, Dare to Lead. Yeah, so we went through the book Dare to Lead. And, uh, and th- there was a big, a big part of that is vulnerability and, and being able to lead through that. And, there, and it, was, it was really powerful. And so um, I I think I've, I think I have gotten better at being able to be more transparent, more vulnerable and being able to um, open myself up to a lot of different things. First of all, being that, well, maybe I'm wrong. And then also um, maybe the way I'm doing it isn't the best way. Maybe there's some, some better way of doing it, which has led to me exploring even more in the self-development type area, which led to me coming back and restarting this podcast to talk about all these different things here to be able to do this. And so, and so I, and so, yeah, I I think it's a really important thing. Mm, That's really humble for you. And just a lot of self-awareness that you're willing to self confront areas where you may be wrong or where you could be doing things better, where you could be growing. And the fact that you've been able to make progress on that is fantastic. You know, and the other thing, as you're saying that it reminds me too. I'm thinking about the book Dare to Lead is how exhausting it is to try to act like we've always got it all together. <laughs> yes. You know, we, we talk about energy levels, right? It's like, 
one great way to just have more energy is not try to fake it, <laughs> you know, not try to pretend like I, oh, I know the answer to this or, oh yeah, I already, I was going to do it that way or, you know, or get defensive when someone tries to give us feedback or even just try to pretend like we're someone we're not and not, and or hold things inside and not tell people. I mean, it's just a lot to carry. Uh, have you noticed that? Have you found your yeah. energy levels have changed even as you've been more open? That is true. Um, yeah, I, I, I never really connected that particular piece to it, but yeah, that that's definitely true. I can definitely see the exhausting. It's all those times when I do try to act like I have it all together, it does feel a lot more exhausting. I get to the end of the day and it's like, I'm just drained whether I did like physical activity or, or whatever. I mean, it's just, that's a lot of mental work, a lot of emotional work to keep all that in. That's a good point. Um, another thing that I thought was really interesting in, in the book, you put a quote here from John Maxwell, which it's not hard to be able to find a quote from John Maxwell with the 200,000 books that or whatever that he's written. <laughs> uh, but, but he said uh, the quote is change is inevitable. Growth is optional. And I think that's really powerful. And especially here in the middle of 2000, um, COVID and pandemic, <laughs> we're, we are all very well aware that change is very much inevitable and we can't necessarily stop it. But the, but the thing also that I've noticed a lot too is, is that growth is optional aspect. You look around and you see, you see how different companies and different people have reacted to what's going on. And there are some people that that they pivot and they and they start to thrive and they start to make and, and they and they are able to make improvements, but then there's others to where it's like, oh, we can't do anything, and so they stop, and then then they're just dead in the water, and so it's a it's a choice. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for. I love that too, and it really comes down to our ability and willingness to self confront you know, to challenge our own comfort zone, to challenge our own assumptions. And like you say, you know, there's examples that we can see of companies and individuals that are doing that really well right now that are uh, pivoting their approach, maybe uh, maximizing their virtual presence now that we're more isolated or finding new ways to make connections with people, finding new ways to take care of themselves when maybe it's harder to do some of the things that we used to do for ourselves. Uh, so that's really inspiring. And then it's also um, really inspiring, I think, even beyond uh, the COVID situation that we're in to see people's willing. It reminds me of our families into tennis and Novak Djokovic, as you may know, is the number one ranked men's singles player in the world. And perhaps you saw about a month ago in the U S open out of frustration at a call by the referee, he slapped a tennis ball to the backstop. And I'm sure he'd done it a hundred times when he's frustrated, but this particular time there happened to be a line judge that was standing in the flight of the ball. It hit her in the neck and she collapsed to the ground. She couldn't breathe. She was in pain and he was mortified that that had happened. And as a result, the U.S. Open kicked him out of the tournament, which he was predicted to win. So he missed all that notoriety and those winnings. And he was fined $10,000 by the USTA, not to mention whether this woman filed a lawsuit against him, plus just the public humiliation. 
And I remember reading an article by Jason Gay, the primary sports columnist for the Wall Street Journal. He said, Djokovic didn't do the typical thing that we do in society today, which is to blame other people or make excuses for our situation. Instead, within a few hours, he posted to his Instagram account. He said, I realize I have had an anger management problem for a long time. This has brought it to a head. And it's time that I confront and make a change. I am committed to growing through the anger that I experience on the court. Now, who knows how much he's worked on that and what he's done with it, but it was just really refreshing to see someone like that from a leadership perspective, willing to say, I need to make a change based on what's going on. This is not working anymore. I need to make a change. Yeah, that is powerful. And yeah, we don't see that very often. And so that kind of thing stands out, first of all. But yeah, so, and I mean, hopefully it wasn't just a publicity stunt or whatever to try to, whatever, smooth over all, all the things, but ho- hopefully not, but hopefully, hopefully he's able to do that. But yeah, that's, that's a really good lesson for us to be able to learn and see how we can be able to confront ourselves when we, well, hopefully before we hit somebody in the throat or something, but, uh, but, but, but hopefully like when we come across situations like, okay, that wasn't the best way to handle this. How can I be able to make, make a better habit? And, and then I think that comes back to the fact that you said, you mentioned there is that he's probably done it a hundred times before. So there was probably that pattern that had developed to where it's like, that was just instinctive that whatever it happened, he got angry and it, it resulted in, what his tendency was, what his, his pattern was. And so, yeah, so I think that's a really good thing. Cause I mean, that's what we do. And I heard this statement. Well, we hear this thing where it says practice makes perfect, but that's, that, that's an incomplete or incorrect statement. It's practice makes permanent. So whatever it is that we practice, that is what is solidified. So then when we do something over and over and over, it becomes our pattern, becomes our default where when we're in a situation, we're not even thinking and it just happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Isn't that interesting? And I mean, really our brains are wired this way. The basal ganglia, we talk in the book about how we're, we're, there's parts of our brain that are designed to embrace patterns because it conserves our energy. You know, once we can make something habitual, we no longer have to think about it as much. We just do it. In fact, that's like the largest part of our brain, the basal ganglia, which is all about patterns and routines. It's the largest part of our brain because it, I think our brain you know, has evolved to optimize energy or be as efficient as possible. And so we go into these patterns, we do things over and over again. And for a long time, like you say, we get away with them. You know, it's an adaption to our environment, like Novak Djokovic, I'm sure for a long time, it was a way for him to release his frustration. It was a way for him to fire himself up, for him to, you know, express his emotions, whatever. And for a long time, maybe he gets away with it, even though people don't find it to be very professional or they you know, find it uh, to be frustrating or maybe it's distracting, yet he's a great tennis player. He is who he is. Let's just let him be. And so we kind of, I think, enable ourselves and enable other people to get away with it until finally it catches up with us. You know, finally, the UST kicks kicks us out of the tournament. Finally, the, our, you know, partner finds the bottle of vodka in the garage. Finally, we have a panic attack and those anxious thoughts caught up to us. 
finally we made a huge mistake because we weren't getting enough sleep. You know, finally it catches up to us and that's when we realize we either are going to remain stuck and just medicate and try to keep making excuses and blame others or we can self-confront and grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's perfect. Now, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you wanted to add? Maybe, I don't know if you want to go any further into that or, or, uh, or anything else we haven't mentioned that you want to make sure gets um, brought to the front. Well, thanks for asking. I mean, the only thing I would add is that I'm, uh, I wrote the book because I, of all the growth in patterns that I've had to do personally and continue to do, you know, I just really find this to be work that creates more joy and more impact. Uh, for instance, I mentioned having panic attacks. I talk in the book about how I had developed a pattern of anxious thinking, particularly when I was with other people, always really hyper aware of what they were thinking about me or what, how they were reacting to my words. And it came to a head in a conference room in Boston about 15 years ago where the thoughts manifested in physical reactions like pounding chest, sweaty palms, my head got cloudy, I had a hard time swallowing, I had a hard time catching my breath, and I had a panic attack in that conference room. And uh, I had to find a way out of that conference room pretending like I was choking on something, realizing shortly after that I had had a panic attack, which at that point caused me, if you know, for anyone who's had a panic attack knows that you tend to want to avoid at all costs ever going into a situation like that that may reproduce the panic attack. So I avoided going into conference rooms. I avoided speaking up in meetings. And it was one of those moments like getting kicked out of a tennis tournament where I realized I either was going to remain stuck and just stay in front of my computer for my job the rest of my career or I was going to self-confront. And uh, it's, it's journeys like that, I think, that make me really passionate about seeing myself and others keep growing. Well, excellent. What would be the best way that people can be able to find out more about you or be able to get the book? Sure. So people can go to fourpatterns.com, the word four, right now, fourpatterns.com, or they can visit my personal website at mattnorman.com. And you can also check it out on Amazon or any uh, online bookseller. Just uh, type in four patterns of healthy people, Matt Norman, and you'll find the E and uh, hard copy versions of the book. Well, excellent. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Joshua. It was a pleasure.